part of the Rewatching Good Television Podcast Network. It's the Sorkin Cast. Here's your host, Matthew Murdick. And welcome to the Sorkin Cast. It's episode 30 of the podcast. This week we're covering season 2, episode 4 of The West Wing, entitled In This White House. My name is Matt Murdick and I am from sorkincast.wordpress.com. That's where you can find all of the back episodes of the podcast. You can also find contact links and podcatcher links. And if you would take the time to leave me a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would be very much appreciated. It helps this podcast stay more noticeable and helps me improve the show. I will be thanking folks who have left uh, reviews during our upcoming feedback podcast, which will drop after our review of the 11th episode of season two. And if you have any feedback regarding those episodes or want to leave the podcast a review and be thanked for it, any feedback that you offer will be included. And I guess that's enough about the podcast. Let's get into talking about season two, episode four of the West Wing in this White House. It was a story written by Allison Abner and Peter Parnell with a teleplay by Aaron Sorkin, it was directed by Ken Olin. It first aired on October 25th, 2000, and was viewed by an estimated 17.1 million viewers. Geos.tv, that's the Global Episode Opinion Survey, ranks this episode 18th out of 156 episodes. Here's your episode summary. While the White House mediates negotiations between an African delegation and U.S. drug companies regarding AIDS medications, Bartlett urges Leo to hire a Republican named Ainsley, with an N, Hayes, to the White House Counsel's office. And C.J. wrestles with a tricky situation with a new White House reporter. And I just want to say that, you know, I've often heard people comment on the musicality or rhythm of Sorkin's dialogue before. And most of the time I don't get wrapped up in that kind of stuff uh, because a lot of the times I'm just trying to figure out what the heck they're saying in terms of making uh, sense out of what they're saying. Uh, But this time I caught it a lot, actually, in this episode uh, with Sorkin's writing. The whole uh, bit with Ainsley... Like uh, where she calls him Mr. McGarry, he says Leo, and then she says yes, sir. That happens several times in the episode, kind of, and then um, the whole Ainsley with an N thing happens several times in the episode, and I I did liken them to like these little rhythmic or musical motifs, uh, these little repetitive phrases that build a larger whole in terms of theme or tone. Uh, really loved that it there was so predominant in this episode that even a knucklehead like me caught it always interesting as well each week is the difference in how walk and talks are handled and the walk and talk of course is a scene where everybody walks through uh different parts of the office or at different locations talking about certain issues or talking about certain people and different directors handle it differently for instance last week we had like a whole bunch of fairly long walk and talks throughout the whole episode. It almost felt like for every time period that we were visiting. Um, This time around, the way Ken Nolan built these scenes 
was he would have short walk and talk and then a long staying period in one place and then another short walk and talk. None of them were very long. Because of that, it was hard for me to choose uh, which one of the few walk and talks that we got this week. I I, sent, I chose one of the short ones. Uh, they were all pretty much short ones. I chose uh, the short one with Josh and Donna explaining the African delegation meeting. I don't feel that I've honed in on this. A lot of people in Africa with HIV. Right. American companies hold the patents on the medicines they need. Yes. Most people in most African countries can't afford to buy the drugs at these prices, so they buy them on the black market. In violation of U.S. patents and international treaties. Yes. How prohibitively priced are the drugs? It costs about 150 bucks a week. Well, that's not totally off the charts. A police officer in Kenya makes $43 a month. Too good in there. And just like nearly every week, there's a walk and talk. There's also a lot of funny in the episode, and I've got some for you now. We call those quick jabs where people are taking little personal stabs at people or basically, you know, stabs at issues or just being a smart ass for the most part. Here is your quick jabs for this week. Got some funny Leo in this one. Um, by the way, I really liked Leo in this up. Anyway, here's the quick jabs. It was a 14-minute briefing. I'm really going to get reviews. You might have mentioned that the same drug that costs $10.80 in Norway, where nobody needs it, costs $90 in Burundi, where everybody needs There's it. There's nothing keeping these people here but goodwill, Toby. They can charge what they want for their products. It sounded to me like we intended to be soft on the drug company. Toby, I don't think anybody expects this White House to be anything but tough on American companies showing a profit. Damn right. President Bartlett. Katie. This is a summit among leaders of American pharmaceutical companies and the AIDS-ravaged African no, nations no, that no. President Nimbala is representing here. Is there a political upside to only having President Nimbala at this photo op and not the pharmaceutical companies? Yes, Katie, I'm trying to shore up the sub-Saharan vote. Charlie, I want to hire a woman whose voice I think would fit in nicely around here. She's a conservative Republican. You think I should do it? Absolutely, Mr. President, because I'm told that theirs is the party of inclusion. See? Charlie, just made a joke to you in the Oval Office. That's how bad an idea it is. What's going on? I wanted to tell you this out where there were people so you wouldn't scream about it. Scream about what? The woman who was on Capitol Beat with Sam Sunday night. What about her? I'm offering her a job. Where? Here. Are you kidding? No. Are you kidding? No. Are you kidding? No. Well, what the hell made you think I wouldn't scream when there are people? I took a shot. Leo! Leah. Yeah? She's here. Good. Should I send her in? You want me to stay here? Why? In case something should happen. What would that be, exactly? I'll bring her in. Thank you. Ainsley? Mr. McGarry. Leo's fine. Yes, sir. Will you offer coffee or something to drink? Yes, the woman who works out there, who I imagine is your secretary, offered me coffee or a soft drink. Okay, so... She was also kind enough to ask for my coat. Excellent. She seems to be a very good secretary. Well, she'll be happy to hear that. She's standing right outside the door. Ow. I don't think that's true. How many people on your staff assumed that I was ambitious, mean, and stupid? None. C.J. Craig thinks you kill your pets. You don't do that, do you? And with that stuff out of the way, let's start talking about the episode. We'll start with our first clip, where we start off meeting Republican Ainsley Hayes, with an N, who in her first appearance on a political show beats Sam in the debate handily. CJ handles the press as the White House hosts a meeting with President Nimbala and his African delegation, as well as drug companies to negotiate for AIDS medication for Nimbala's country, but is asked a question by a new junior reporter and regrets the information she shares. 
President Bartlett orders Leo to hire Ainsley Hayes, with an N, as the White House counsel, despite his protests. And in a press conference, the president is impressed by President Nimbala. Finally, Ainsley, with an N, gets a call from the White House. Ainsley? Yes. Mark Godfrey? Ainsley Hayes. So, we'll be starting here in about a minute. I understand you've never done TV before. No, no, not as such, no. Not as such? What does that mean? It means, no, I haven't done TV before. Don't try to do too much. Don't try to know more than you do. <laughs> My show's not the place for you to become a star. Okay. You'd be opposite Sam Seaborn. He's done the show a couple dozen times. The White House wouldn't keep sending him if he didn't keep wiping the floor with whoever's in your chair. I've seen him. Don't be scared. I'll try. Toby, come quick. Sam's getting his ass kicked by a girl. Should you get the popcorn? Bartlett and President Nambala of the Republic of Equatorial Kundu, who's representing the African nations. Uh, CJ, uh, is it the goal of the summit to get the drug companies to lower their prices, or is the goal to get the African countries to honor U.S. patents? The goal of the summit is to get a step closer to solving 26 million African AIDS victims. We're counting on the drug companies, we're counting on the African nations, we're counting on the global health community, and they're counting on the White House to help broker a solution. Is the White House prepared to declare war on the drug companies? Well, it sounds like you already have, so if we need a button man will call you. Thank you, everybody. Half hour in the mural room. CJ, I wanted to introduce myself. I'm Bill Kelly from the Cleveland Courier. Hi. They're breaking me in to cover for Tom Johnson. I've been sitting in the back. Welcome. Can I ask you something? That's what I'm here for. Do you know anything about Bonomo Energy selling drilling equipment to Iraq? I'm not going to wave you off the story, but I can't tell you anything about it. If they were selling the Iraqis drilling equipment, that would be in violation of sanctions, wouldn't it? Grand jury investigations are secret, Bill. I can't tell you any more about it. I understand. Nice meeting you. Nice meeting you. Bill. Yeah. Nothing, just nothing. Okay. Did you see Sam get pureed last night on Capitol B? I didn't see it, but I have heard tell. Got diced and sliced by a woman named Ainsley Hayes. She's been writing some columns. Yeah, I know. I had Charlie pull them for me. Where's she been? She was clerking for Dryford. We should hire her. That'd be funny. No, I mean it. I mean what? We should hire her. Mr. President, are you considering asking Congress to forgive existing debt? It's an international health crisis. There's nothing I'm not considering. Arthur? President Nambala, what's the best you could hope to come away with from this summit? What's a home run? America. There are people who make miracles in the world. One of them leads right here in the U.S. He realized that vital elements could be harvested from the stalk of the wheat. In his hands, India, which at the time had been ravaged by drought and overpopulation, in his hands, the wheat crop increased from 11 million tons to 60 million tons annually. That's right. His name is Norman Borlaug, by the way, and he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. I think you're absolutely right about the kind of miracle we need. I think we're going to make a lot of progress in the next couple of days. I hope so, Mr. President. My country's dying. We're going to get a lot of work ripping these people to shreds and looking good doing it. That's an actual job now? That's him. Let's see. I push this button. Phone number appears. Ainsley. 202-456-1414. Is that the agent? It's the White House. 
You know, sometimes with these episodes, as I cut them up for clips, I have a really hard time deciding what to keep and, and what to cut from an episode. And I was actually very tempted to put that whole teaser between Ainsley and Sam in this just because it, it's one of those moments for me anyway that I decided that I really liked Ainsley uh, she, right off the bat. She just struck me. It was it was lightning in a bottle. I guess you could say. But of course you have a limited amount of time uh, each week in order to present stuff and, and still keep the podcast under an hour. So instead I just kind of went with her brief introduction and basically the result of Sam's first exchange. Um, I do think it's a very important introduction, but uh, also rewatching the scene can be a little painful for me, that teaser part, simply for the fact that even while it helps you appreciate Ainsley for triumphing over everyone's preconceived notions regarding her looks, uh, whether she's actually smart or not. I did feel like that it, it makes Sam look a little more politically buffoonish than he usually is. And, and it almost felt a little bit like a, a slight overcompensation on the part, maybe of, of Rob Lowe or Sorkin both to try and achieve that in order to make Ainsley look smarter. Uh, I thought that Ainsley looked smart without Rob Lowe looking like he had his foot in his mouth the whole time. Uh, but that's just me. I can definitely tell you that Ainsley Hayes is a favorite character of a lot of people and a favorite character of mine. Even though she doesn't appear in a whole lot of episodes, she was really introduced to bring some balance into the issue talk side of the show. Because it's kind of hard when you have a whole bunch of guys on the same side taking such polar opposite views uh, on certain subjects. And when you have somebody who is supposed to have those opposite views present them, um, then it feels a little more realistic. Although I don't know how realistic it is to really have, um, you know, a whole bunch of people from the opposing party working for you. But it's a nice idea. Um, I will say that I don't always agree with Ainsley's viewpoints, but I do tend to allow myself to listen to them rather than tune them out. Uh, plus, I'm a huge fan of Emily Proctor in general, uh, and I'm not sure if it's that kind of like southern accented voice that seems to sit more in the nose than in the mouth, or if it's just her delivery of the lines, but I, I just can never not pay attention to what she's saying, and that is in opposition as to how she looks. I mean, granted, she's a very attractive person, but I just love hearing what Ainsley says. I don't recall how long it was uh, since her appearance here that Emily got the, the uh, I think it was a job on uh, CSI. Uh, and I, I'm glad that she got a great regular role on a very successful show. But uh, unfortunately, I feel like it also, it robbed us West Wing viewers of getting more of her more often. Still, we've got some great episodes with her to come. Uh, and this introductory episode of hers was absolutely fabulous. And there's these cute little quirks about her also. On a first watch, the whole caller ID thing, it, it seemed a little demeaning to Ainsley's character in a way. But now, to me, when I watch it, I just see her as a character um, where this little trivial stuff like caller ID or um, in today's world, it'd probably be Twitter or something like that wouldn't matter to her because she's concentrating so hard on the issues themselves that the whole social media thing or even just something as simple as caller ID here uh, would be beneath her notice. 
not that she couldn't wasn't capable she demonstrates she's capable of it by the end of the clip but uh just beneath her notice not something that she felt was important enough to pay attention to now as for her friends i think everybody wants to hate them uh because of how you know really just hateful they are but the fact that she just kind of was even ignoring what they were saying that makes her stand out even more as someone who has a a sense of duty about relaying her viewpoints about the issues. Love that. Now, here's one thing about the CJ storyline this week that I just I have a hard time with. You know, last week I was just touting about how together CJ was and like helping Toby and Bartlett get through their post shooting issues and and really being on top of her game as a press secretary. And now here she makes another mistake. And even though she instantly catches it, the cat is out of the bag. But instead of doing something about it, uh, like Ainsley suggests to her later, she basically hides for the rest of the episode. And, okay, we know it's been at least 12 weeks that she's gone pretty much mistake-free, it would seem. If you watched last week's midterm episode, she seems to have not made any mistakes in that episode. And that was, what, uh, that was a 12-week span uh, and I would imagine that that's probably a good stretch of success for anyone who has ever been a press secretary. But the problem is, is that because we do have the time truncated in the last episode, the back and forth about CJ happens in back to back episodes and, and it makes her seem a lot more inconsistent than she actually is. Like I said, I think it's perfectly realistic for her to make a mistake and, and no journey is going to be completely linear. Everyone has to go in leaps and then stutter steps backwards from time to time. But it just annoys me as a rewatcher that I have to see CJ have trouble right after I see her have a really good episode because I, I do love CJ's character so much. She's one of my favorites as well. When when you look at where she was when she started, where she ends up for you rewatchers, uh, you know where that is. Uh, it's it's kind of weird to see these little stutter steps. I guess it does help her character grow over the long haul. So that's good, I guess. I'll, I'll try and keep it a positive spin on that. I love that we see Bartlett being so adamant to Leo about hiring Ainsley with an N2. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that everyone in that White House loves seeing Sam get beat up a little bit just because... Sam is one of the smartest guys in the room to these people all the time. So it's probably really rare to see him lose to anyone on issues uh, in the public forum. Remember that whole opposition paper thing back last season? Was that six meetings before lunch? Um, Where Leo told Mallory that opposition is where they put the smart people. uh, Which just proves the point as to why everybody would take delight in Sam getting beat up by Ainsley. But what you have to love about Bartlett here is that somewhere in the process of delighting in, in Sam getting beat, he's also realized that Ainsley is one of those smart people, too. And so he takes the time, gets some of her pieces read, you know, pulled and read. And as opposed to Leo, who wants to look at some kind of political upside to it, he's merely interested in getting Ainsley in there because he thinks it will make for better governing and maybe even some better ideas. And. I love how that shows Bartlett is, again, willing to reach out to the other side and cooperate. 
he had a sit down with a senator last season about the FEC that was really great. And I love how Bartlett does that. It doesn't matter where the ideas come from, from which side of the aisle the ideas come from. If they're the better idea or if he thinks that someone can contribute, then he asks them to. I guess people could argue that he only reaches out when it might be to his advantage, but I, I disagree with that. I, I think this whole sense of duty that he brings up uh, in a part that I actually, I think I cut out of this clip, that's that's what makes Bartlett and his willingness to try these things great. He has the same sense of duty, and he asks Leo to appeal to her sense of duty as well. And I, and I feel that same sense of duty thing is what makes... President Bartlett actually really liked Nimbala as well, because Nimbala has come to these meetings basically hoping for a miracle, and it's out of a sense of duty to his own people. I mean, there's no political upside in him coming and trying to negotiate with these drug companies, and I'm probably going to butcher this actor's name, so I apologize in advance, but uh, Zox Mokai, uh, he did an unbelievable job carrying the weight and, and the pride that's embedded in that role. Um, that actor, I think, unfortunately passed away like in 2009. Uh, but I do know that he won at least a Tony. I think he was more known as a stage actor. Uh, but he did such a great job with this character that I, I just was drawn into him uh, immediately. And wow, that was a lot of talk about the first clip. So let's move on to the second one. In this clip, we look in on the drug company and Nimbala's negotiations. Leo tries to hire Ainsley. And Sam and CJ talk about CJ having problems and the negotiations. President Nimbala, when you sell to small pharmacies, as we do in Norway, a different price is set. No way. No way. $10 per unit U.S., my country, $23 per unit U.S. Retail markup, taxes, pharmacy discounts, these things vary widely. Not to mention the fact we don't even know if the drugs are getting to your citizens. You're implying corruption and incompetence. We do have reports of that, Mr. President. You talk to me about corruption. What are your annual sales of fluconazole alone? Billion dollars. I don't understand your point, sir. I think President Nabala is saying there's more money in giving a white guy an erection than curing a black guy of AIDS. Sir, my company has given away over $120 million worth of free drugs a year, including free doses of Zyklosynth, which is one of two drugs in your country curing eye infection right now. They're not dying from eye infections, Alan. Well, they're not dying because of me either, Toby. And I'd like not to be talked to this way. Alan, if it was 26 million Europeans dying, we'd have had a solution yesterday. How much would it cost for you to provide free drugs to the Sahelese Republic, Kenya, and the Republic of Equatorial Kunda? I have no idea. Why not? We're talking about 130,000 patients, 200 milligram pills, three times a day, every day. What's the X factor? We don't know how long they'll live. We're nowhere. Let's take a break. Yes, well, Mr. McGarry. Leo? 
Yes, sir. I've been thinking about that ever since your office called me on Tuesday, and I have something to say on my own behalf. If you'll permit me a moment to say it, and I understand if you won't, but I would really appreciate it if you did. I didn't really follow that, but whatever. I think that it is wrong for a man in your position to summon someone to the White House to reprimand them for voicing opposition. I think that that is wrong, and it is inappropriate. It's inappropriate, and I'll tell you what else. It's wrong. Yes. That's fine, except you weren't summoned here to be reprimanded. Well, then if you'll permit me, why was I summoned? You have an interesting conversational style, you know that? It's a nervous condition. I used to have a nervous condition. How did yours manifest itself? I drank a lot of scotch. I get sick when I drink too much. I get drunk when I drink too much. Well, Mr. McGarry... Leo? Yes, sir. I'll ask again, for what purpose was I brought here today? So I could offer you a job. I'm asking because I do not think that it is fair that I be expected to play the role of the mouse to the White House's cat in the game of... You know the game. Cat and mouse? Yes. And it's not like I'm not, you know... The fact that I may not look like some of the other Republicans who have crossed your path does not mean that I am any less inclined toward... Here it comes. Did you say offer me a job? Yes. Associate White House Counsel. You'd report to the Deputy White House Counsel who reports to the White House Counsel who reports to me. I'm sorry. A job in this White House? You want a glass of scotch? Yes, please. CJ, what did you want to ask me the other day? Sam, if I talk to you about it, you could be subpoenaed. Don't worry about it. It could cost you and... Don't worry about I it. I do worry about it. There's no problem. I just need some sleep. What can I bring into the room about the conference? The sessions are productive. Progress is being made. These kind of things take time. All the parties are optimistic. Are any of the parties optimistic? No. I'm not certain if it was because the introduction of Ainsley kind of represents a balance in the presentation of issues going across the board or not. But while I stood all of Nimbala and Toby's arguments, I also did find it hard to lay blame completely at the feet of the drug companies in this episode. I, I felt like everybody was rightly frustrated by the problem that in reality does seem impossible to resolve completely. And even though I think Josh and Toby's proposal later, I, I think it did have some great merit. Um, it, it still seems like a really hard problem to to wrestle. There's an implication many times in this episode that kind of subtly vilifies the drug companies a little bit. Things like their reps seemingly addressing Toby and Josh more than Nimbala himself. And the cool thing about that is that Nimbala points it out. But in terms of holding them actually like directly and completely responsible for not being able to solve the problem, uh, as a viewer, I could never quite go there myself. Again, I, I really thought it was a brilliant demonstration of just how big problems in the world can be and how nice it is to have all of these great characters at least making an effort to try and tackle those problems. Now, in the scene with Leo and Ainsley, I, I mean, this is just one of the true classics of the series. Uh, I, I mentioned the motive nature of the dialogue before, but this whole scene is just kind of like one big comedic song with these little motives building on each other as they go along. Uh, it, it's just an amazing scene. And all the Sorkin dialogue, even even though it's brilliant, is still to me very much execution dependent. And I really think that Emily Proctor and John Spencer just nailed it. Um, they did to me anyway. The other part of this conversation I kind of left out of the clip, so 
I'll just comment on it now. When Ainsley was standing up, and and Leo is even practically cheering her on uh, for being the way she is. He's starting to embrace the way she is, and he really is starting to like her. Um, that whole sequence, though, it was just a perfect illustration of how Sorkin can make you laugh at these characters, and yet at the very same time, everything they say has meaning, and and even sometimes in profound ways. As for the the C.J. Sam scene, I, I had to cut C.J. giving Sam a hard time about Ainsley earlier on in the episode. You know that whole chicken clucking thing, but I love how you see a difference in their relationship here. I mean. Sam is showing real concern for the fact that CJ can't sleep ever, ever since she tried to ask him about the grand jury thing and then couldn't, which I also had to cut. Um, it's really an interesting bond to me that CJ and Sam have, and it's not just from the shooting. Uh, that's an easy thing to point out that how they can joke and, and then just let it slide when serious stuff comes to matter. But, uh, I can't remember what episode it was, but the whole Sam, you really are very sweet sometimes. That was last season, I guess. I, I think that that demonstrates how much she appreciates him and how, you know, superficial uh, all of the jokes are. And here she won't say anything to Sam because she doesn't want to get him in trouble. Sometimes friendship demonstrations between characters on the show can be a little bit over the top or beat you over the head. Uh, but to me, the Sam and CJ friendship is not one of those cases to me. It's very affectionate, but not to the point where it's unrealistic. And I guess that does it for this clip. So let's go on to clip three, where Josh and Toby talk about Nimbala. Ainsley stumbles upon the rookie reporter on her way out of the building and is alerted to CJ's mistake. The drug negotiations go nowhere. Ainsley talks to CJ about her problem. And Josh and Toby finally come up with a solution for the unsolvable problem. Tell me about Nimbala. He's a good president, Josh. He was a great soldier, a brilliant commander. He led his people for 28 years. He can't get ahead of the curve. He's cursed by geography. You know what? If the ground won't grow anything, you don't have an economy. Still, he stands in a room and he talks about Norman Borlaug. Came here himself, Josh. He didn't send delegates. I think it's because he doesn't have any. I think he's holding his country together with both hands. Then let's make sure we send him back with something. That's my point. Fellas. Yeah. They're ready. Are you new too? Excuse me? Are you new too? It's my fourth day. Uh, no. Maybe you can help me then. I'm trying to get somewhere with drilling equipment that might have been sold by Bonomo Energy to the Iraqis in violation of sanctions. Now, I asked CJ about it, and she said there's a grand jury investigation, and she's not allowed to talk. If you ask me, she was acting a little bit... I, I don't know. But I hear she hasn't been able to sleep, and maybe that's because... She told you there was a grand jury investigation? Yeah. You say Yeah. This way. I think Mr. Damson has brought up a hard truth that should be faced... What's that? If tomorrow we made AIDS medication free to every patient in your country, as much as they needed for as long as they needed it, it would likely make very little difference in the spread of the epidemic. Why? Anti-HIV drugs are a triple cocktail. It's a complicated regimen that requires 10 pills to be taken every day at precise times. Two protease inhibitors every eight hours, two combination RTI pills every 12 hours. What's the problem? 
They don't own wristwatches. They can't tell time. We agree that something must be done. But we don't think we're culprits, and we don't think there is an easy or obvious solution. And we think you should be aware of the dangers involved in some of the proposals made here today. Excuse me. I was going to see Leo McGarry. He asked me to come back and see him again at the end of the day. I'm Ainsley Hayes. It's good to meet you. I'm not taking the job, CJ. Well. I just wanted to... CJ, Rule 6E of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure says you can be prosecuted for even confirming a grand jury's been impaneled. How did you know? A reporter in your press room who hasn't read the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. Well, someone's going to tell him eventually. Who told you? One of the witnesses who was called. What could happen? 18 months. Medium security. CJ, I'm kidding. You didn't break the law. Attorneys and jurors are under a gag order. Witnesses are free to say whatever they want. And anyone is free to repeat what they've said. You know, I'm not sure that laying low and hoping nobody noticed was the best strategy here. Next time, you should really run it by someone in the counsel's office. Anyway, I should go see Leah. Yeah. And we believe the Export-Import Bank will offer a billion dollars in loans to finance the purchase of American AIDS medication. Congress won't approve the loan? Congress won't have to, sir. The Treasury and the State Department will review it. But if we spread the loans out over several countries in your region on a case-by-case -case basis, and if none of the loans exceed $100 million, we don't need congressional approval. That law might change soon. So let's look at the whole drug thing first here. Getting a picture from Toby about who Nimbala is really makes you see how desperate his mission is and why Toby is really so eager to try and badger the drug companies into any kind of deal. And when you look at the problems that face that nation as pointed out by the drug reps, it doesn't seem like any solution will help everyone. But you have to love that Toby and Josh are still going to fight the good fight to help anyone even if they can't help everyone now a lot of the nimbala dialogue i cut for time but there is a stipulation to the plan that josh and toby come up with that puts nimbala in an impossible position as well he wants to help everyone in this country and the stipulation that black market sales must be curtailed is very hard for him to accept I mean, after all, up to this point, that's pretty much the only way that he's been able to get help for anyone in his country, let alone everyone, right? And his speech about his father being a proud man clearly demonstrates the amount of pride that he's shown in the negotiations himself and how difficult it is for him to accept the stipulations. But it's also his dignity and his love of his country and sense of duty uh, and a love of his people, I'm sure, as well, that allows him to come to the conclusion to accept. Um, so the Nimbala character is just so extraordinarily complex, uh, as well as the situation that they have him in uh, in this episode. I, I really was drawn in uh, to the issue itself. As for Ainsley finding out about CJ... I mean, her being in the briefing room was the one thing in this episode that I found remarkably unbelievable. 
first off, like if Margaret was told by Leo to show Ainsley out and we've already established that Margaret has a distrust of Ainsley anyway, I can't imagine her letting Ainsley get out of her sight long enough not to be there to overhear Ainsley's conversation with the reporter. Of course, that would have trumped the tension of asking what Ainsley might do with the information, right? I mean, that was the whole purpose of that. But just the situation that created that purpose seemed very convenient uh, and very unrealistic. Now, Sorkin does like to make things convenient uh, in order to tell a story, even if that is at a compromise of realism sometimes. So it's okay as long as you accept it as that. But if you're one of these people who like to nitpick, like I occasionally do, um, then that would be the one real big nitpick for me for this episode. Now, when Ainsley came back and, and she talked to CJ, you knew that she was going to say something about it and that it was probably going to resolve well. I personally didn't know about the laws of grand juries, uh, but I guess people who already did knew that CJ was in the clear, so that whole storyline wasn't a big issue for them. I didn't, but I did feel a little bit cheated by the joke that Ainsley made by you know making that whole comment about the sentence, medium security and such. You could almost see that as being the one kind of mean thing that Ainsley does the whole episode. And yes, again, it's from Sorkin's point of view, it's to build that last bit of tension for CJ, I guess. But when you look at the rest of Ainsley in this whole episode, it just seemed a little bit out of character that she would make that joke so dryly that her sense of humor would be so dry there. Um, because then it does kind of come across as mean. But uh, it was good that anyway that Ainsley, it's not like she let it linger. It's not like she walked away. That would have been actually mean. But she ends up telling CJ the truth. Um, and really, the fact that she talks to CJ about it, it, it really sets her up for some good stuff towards the end of the episode. Which, of course, we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and with that, let's move on to clip four, where Sam and Ainsley go at it one more time while waiting for Leo. And once Josh and Toby arrive, they must immediately leave it alone when they find out Nimbala's government has been taken over in his absence. You know, something you forgot to mention about the 95% of the money going straight into the classroom past the pork barrel buffet was that the school only got the money if they agreed not to distribute condoms. Well, that's a reason to veto it, because the thing our public schools need more than anything else right now are free condoms. I'd definitely make that priority hey, one. Hey, where's Leo? He's not here. You're Ainsley Hayes. Ainsley, uh, with an N. She works here now. What? Leo hired her. What are you talking about? Leo hired her. He told me and CJ he was waiting to tell you and Toby. What was he waiting for? How the hell do I know, Josh? Waiting until he hired me, which he hasn't done because I'm not taking the job. You're not taking the job? No. But thank you for talking to me instead of about me. Hang on, I'm still back on he offered you the job, but you're not taking the job? No, man, why participate in the process when you can get a job commenting on it? You think because I don't want to work here, it's because I can get a better gig on Geraldo? Gosh, let's see if there could possibly be any other reason why I wouldn't want to work in this White House. 
This White House that feels that government is better for children than parents are, that looks at 40 years of degrading and humiliating free lunches handed out in a spectacularly failed effort to level the playing field and says, let's try 40 more. This White House that says of anyone that points that out to them that they are cold and mean and racist and then accuses Republicans of using the politics of fear. This White House that loves the Bill of Rights, all of them, except the second one. This is the wrong place to talk about guns right now. I thought your column was idiotic. Imagine my surprise. But for a brilliant surgical team and two centimeters of a miracle, this guy's dead right now. From bullets fired from a gun bought legally. They bought guns, they loaded them, they drove from Wheeling to Roslyn, and until they pulled the trigger, they had yet to commit a crime. I am so off the charts, tired of the gun lobby, tossing around words like personal freedom and nobody calling them on it. It's not about personal freedom. And it certainly has nothing to do with public safety. It's just that some people like guns. Yes, they do. But you know what's more insidious than that? Your gun control position doesn't have anything to do with public safety, and it's certainly not about personal freedom. It's about you don't like people who do like guns. You don't like the people. Think about that the next time you make a joke about the South. Where's Leo? What? Where's Leo? We don't know. Charlie, you seen Leo? Mr. President, three hours ago, there was a coup in your country. The AFRC has taken the capital. I never What are my children? We're finding out. The information's coming very quickly now from our people in Angola and Sudan. Mr. President, I think you should sit. Oh, thank you. I'll go now. No, no, sir. My State Department is offering you asylum in the U.S. Thank you, Mr. President. But I have to go home. You can't go home. You can't go home. I'm the leader. They have the capital. They have the radio station. They have the television station. Are they Americans on the ground? I'm evacuating the embassy. If they close the airport? Yes. They want to arrest me. They want to put me on trial. You should trade my return for the safe departure of the Americans. I don't need to trade you. If they won't give me the Americans, we'll go and get them ourselves, and they know that, and they'll let them go. I'd like to call my embassy. Your embassy is in exile, Mr. President. They will shoot you the moment you step off the plane. The Sam and Ainsley showdown, I that was good. I mean, I love the passion from both sides, and it was well played by Lowe and Proctor, and it, the Josh stuff with Bradley Whitford was just the right amount of absurdity to make it seem like this kind of conversation would exactly go like this if this kind of situation could ever happen in the White House. I did find it interesting that Ainsley's argument about schools actually sounded a lot like Sam's argument for school vouchers uh, last season when he did that opposition paper that Mallory tore into him about. Was that six meetings before lunch as well? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Um, And... You can see why Sam is very passionate about guns at the moment, of course, because of what happened at Roslyn, even though his position isn't likely to have changed since before that time. I mean, I'm pretty sure he's always had that position, but he's really deeply caring about Josh and and what happened to him. And so um, he takes the whole gun debate personally. But I love the fact that no matter what's going on, 
everyone just drops everything and and they go right to work in regards to Nimbala's country as soon as they get the news. And it's good that Ainsley sees what happens uh, there because obviously that that's kind of the last little piece that changes Ainsley's mind uh, as we play, of course, the result of the episode. It's in that moment that everyone stops being Democrats or st- stops being Republicans or liberals or conservatives. Everybody just becomes human beings. And that's really what changes Ainsley's mind and makes her really kind of make the speech that she does at the end of the episode. As for Nimbala himself, I mean, not only does he want to return to his country to help his people and try and put his country back together, um, and maybe there's some of that, again, that pride that we've been talking about in him that makes him think that he actually even can, even though everybody here is trying to tell him otherwise. But the interesting thing also is that he really wants to help the Americans in terms of the American people from the American embassy. He thinks that he can be a piece to help them come home. Um, and that's more or less being thankful for the deal that Josh and, and Toby uh, have brought to him under the table. Um, and, you know, his personal safety or his life or whatever doesn't matter. He's still thinking that he needs to do this in order to help the U.S. be able to honor this deal that he's made. And, of course, you have Bartlett who urges him not to go because he respects Nimbala, and, and maybe he thinks that a man like Nimbala just can't be sacrificed in a world that needs people like Nimbala. Um, and maybe he thinks that it's somewhere down the line, um, he can get Nimbala back in power or something, but he doesn't want Nimbala to go because he realizes the value of that kind of leader. And the whole scene is just like tense. It's heartbreaking. It's really good storytelling to have this kind of ironic twist placed at the end of a story where everyone has struggled so hard to try and come up with a good solution for Nimbala's people. And then to have it all just kind of be blown up uh, in the blink of an eye like this. And that seems very realistic to me as well. And I guess that's all I've got for that clip. So the final clip, President Bartlett makes one last effort to convince Nimbala to stay. Ainsley decides she wants to work for this White House. And a day later, Bartlett, Toby, and Josh get the news that Nimbala was executed upon arriving in his homeland. We think your brother... And your two sons are already dead. We think your wife is being hidden in Kenya. You understand, don't you, why I can't offer military assistance? Yes. Ned, sit with me for a moment. Sit down, sir. Look at us. We hired a Republican. Look at how bipartisan we are. We didn't even notice that she looks like a gap dancer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Ainsley. Hey. Bruce was just telling me. I couldn't resist. So they tried to hire you. Tell me about the look on McGarry's face. What? When you said no. I, um, couldn't see him. He had to, he was called into. What's wrong? Nothing. He had to... Something happened. Oh, damn, I wanted you to say it to his face. I wanted to see... I hate these people. Did you meet anyone there who isn't worthless? Don't say that. <laughs> Did you meet anyone there who has any... I said don't say that. 
say they're smug and superior. Say their approach to public policy makes you want to tear your hair out. Say they like high taxes and spending your money. Say they want to take your guns and open your borders, but don't call them worthless. At least don't do it in front of me. The people that I have met have been extraordinarily qualified. Their intent is good. Their commitment is true. They are righteous and they are patriots. And I'm their lawyer. You ever read Paul Ehrlich's book? The Population Bomb? Yeah. He wrote it in 1968. Ehrlich said that it was a fantasy that India would ever feed itself. Then Norman Borlaug comes along. See, the problem was that wheat is top-heavy. It was falling over on itself, and it took up too much space. The dwarf wheat. Guys, it was an agricultural revolution that was credited with saving one billion lives. Thanks. It happened. They executed him in the airport parking lot. Again, I, I just want to say what an incredible job uh, this actor, uh, Zach Smokai, did in this particular episode, um, and especially in these final sequences. And, and Sheen, too. I mean, being a man who not only has to tell Nimbala that his family is dead or kidnapped, but that he can't help him. And you can really kind of see the light going out of Nimbala's eyes as he acknowledges it all. It was really, really sad. There was so much weight. All of this is so unexpected and feels very real. I mean, I was just kind of curling up in a ball seeing all of this go down. And that, of course, carries on to the final scene with Bartlett and Josh and, and Toby when they get the news about Nimbala. Um Sometimes Sorkin finds the simplest word, and I, I know that part of it is execution dependent, but it conveys such realism, like just using the word okay, the way he uses the word okay. There's no like, you know, over the top monologue here or anything about the news. It's just Bartlett, the way he uses the word okay. It reminds me of uh, the way he used the word okay in, in Excelsius Deo back in season one when he found out about the uh, kid finally dying. Um, that that was just terrible, uh, you know, and, and she does such a good job with that. Or think about the way Charlie used the word okay when he found out that he was the target you know, just a couple of episodes ago. And that's all it takes to convey the emotion of, of what's going on. Again, it's execution dependent, but Sorkin never seems to surround himself with people who can't make that simple word into something that just conveys so much. I guess I was so affected by these final sequences that the scene with Ainsley in the middle um, probably wasn't as impactful as uh, it could have been, but it was still very impactful because Ainsley's speech was pretty moving too. She, she saw those people stop being politicians. She saw everybody in the White House become human. 
And because of that, uh, she couldn't stop seeing them any other way. And uh, once again, Sorkin separates her from her other conservative friends by making them seem very shallow and hateful. And I don't know if that was really necessary, but it does trigger the speech, of course, which I love because Ainsley clearly demonstrates why she's taken the job, her sense of duty. And that's the huge theme for this episode. It's for her. It's for Nimbala. It's for Bartlett. She doesn't back down from her problems with this White House politics in the speech either, which is great because it doesn't feel like it's just she's been converted or anything. But she does recognize those people as people who feel a sense of duty, just like herself. And uh, after all, she's wanted to work in the White House only since she was two. And that probably is the same way that almost everybody who works in that building feels, I would imagine. And I guess that's all I have to say for the episode. So why don't we get to my episode rating? So, as I tell you every week, at sorkincast.wordpress.com, I have a special page set up with my rating scale, my 10-point rating scale that I use to watch these episodes. Uh, go to the website and check it out for yourself so you can kind of get a level of what the difference in the ratings are. Uh, this one gets a straight nine from me. I think it's an amazing introduction to one of my favorite side characters. It's a really compelling story about how easy it is for industrialized nations to leave other nations behind, even if it's not intentional. There's a story of courage and duty, and it's the kind of thing that makes you wonder if the White House could ever be so incredible and so um, troubling for the people who patriotically feel compelled to to serve their nation there. Um, so that's it. Uh, a nine. I, I really love this episode. I can see why it makes the top 20 in the geos.tv uh, rankings. And next week, it's season two, episode five, and it's surely to their credit is the name of the episode. And if you have any thoughts about the first 11 episodes, uh, I want to hear your thoughts about these first 11 episodes how do you submit that feedback? Well, you can send an email to sorkincast at gmail.com or you can call the Rewatching Good TV listener line 314-669-1840 or you can tweet at Sorkincast on Twitter. Again, you can find all of that information at sorkincast.wordpress.com. Also, remember, keep certain things in mind for our West Wing Season 2 awards. Uh, as we go through these episodes, keep track of your favorite and least favorite episode or your favorite and least favorite scene. I got a nomination for that in this particular episode with the Ainsley Leo stuff. Um, favorite and least favorite main character and favorite and least favorite guest star may have a possible nomination out of that as well from this episode. Uh, we will have those awards in our final feedback section for season two after we review the finale and I'll get you the deadline date for that in the future but in the meantime be sure to keep it in mind and until next week when again we review season two episode five and it's surely to their credit this is matt saying thanks for listening and take care find all of the back episodes links and more information at sorkincast.wordpress.com leave the podcast a written review at our itunes or stitcher store pages to submit feedback, send emails to sorkincast at gmail.com or call 314-669-1840.